This is a RomiCast. This podcast was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020-21. Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Hey, size Can we just have a little less guitar in here? No, that's no way. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we can both of us do what we want to do. Not bad, that one. Keep that one. Market fab. Hello, and welcome to The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk, during which we will take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with our great musical guests as they discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. The podcast website is romicast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com, romicast.com. If you go to that website, you can find out more information about me. And more importantly, you can find each and every episode that we've done so far in the series. Uh, And also, if you see fit, you can make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free. Any donation is muchly appreciated, I can assure you, and your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show, hosting, advertising, equipment, and so on. It's a labor of love for me, and I do enjoy doing it. If you enjoy the show, please do consider a donation to support the show. Just click on the donate button right at the bottom of the website. It's that simple, and again, any donation would be much much appreciated. And if you don't already, please do subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. Uh, If you could, leave a positive review or rating. Those things really do help. Thanks. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram. It's a great way to communicate. If you have comments on the show or questions, uh, then find me on Twitter or Instagram. The handle is the same on both. It is the underscore RomiCast. The underscore RomiCast. And you can also look for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page on Facebook. A like and or a follow goes a long way there. My guest today is often described as a Canadian musical treasure. Singer, songwriter, musician Ron Sexsmith put out an indie cassette of his work in 1986. And starting in 1991, he is released by my count 16 albums the latest being 2020's Hermitage, which came out in April. It's available wherever you stream your music or at any online music retailer if you're looking for the CD. 
Ron is known as a songwriter's songwriter. In fact, he won the Juno Award. That's the highest honor in the Canadian music industry, if you're not familiar with that. He won the Juno Award as Songwriter of the Year in 2005. And he has received praise for his work from the likes of Elvis Costello, Elton John, Ray Davies, Pete Townsend, and Paul McCartney, just to name a few. He's collaborated with the late Leonard Cohen, Coldplay's Chris Martin, just to name a couple, and his songs have been covered by, among others, Feist, Rod Stewart, Emmylou Harris, Nick Lowe, Michael Buble, and the aforementioned Elvis Costello. Ron's website is ronsexsmith.com. He's a great follow on Twitter, a lot of fun, uh, loves wordplay, and you can follow him on Twitter. The handle is ronsexsmith. So Ron Sexsmith, singer, songwriter, musician, thank you so much for stopping by to talk about the Beatles. Yeah, no, no, no trouble. Uh, love the Beatles, love all their solo work too. Um, now, I heard you say in an interview uh, when you were talking about your younger days, I'm going to read the quote. You said, I was surrounded by music, but not because of anyone else. It was because I surrounded myself with it. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Well, it was the kind of the the one thing, really, you know, that as a kid that spoke to me, you know. Um, and I was very grateful, um, fortunate to grow up in a time, uh, you know, in terms of music on the radio that was so melodic, you know. And um, and it just, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time, if you were playing road hockey on the street, you'd have your transistor radio playing on the curb, you know. And or in the car I was playing, and, and at home I, I really dived into my uh, my mom's records. I mean, my dad left when I was two, but he left his records behind, you know. And so I think in a way I was getting to um, sort of know him a little bit by playing all this forty uh, fives, and and most of them were country, you know, or doo wop and stuff like that, which I loved as well. But then you turn on the radio and you just hear the most amazing. The, you know, you hear a song like Nowhere Man or something by the Beatles, and you as a kid, you know, like. You know, that gave you a lot to ponder, about, you know, like a nowhere man. Wow, that's <clears throat> what a concept. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, it just really spoke to me in a way that, you know, some kids it was hockey or whatever it was, you know, but for me it was just like, it, I was really curious about all the singers because they had such unique voices and it made me wonder uh, if I had my own voice too. And so it just became... Uh, my lifelong obsession, you know. Who was, is, is there a moment where you remember the Beatles first being in your life? Yeah, I remember, um, I think I was aware of them, you know. Um, but I was sleeping one night, um, maybe I'd just gone to bed, and my mom, and this was pretty cool, that she woke us up to come down to watch the Beatles on the David Frost show. And they were doing um, Hey Jude, you know. Yep, yep. So I think that might have been the first time I saw them, except I think I'd seen the Beatle cartoon, you know, that was like a, <laughs> you know, that wasn't very good. <clears throat> but, um, but yeah, so I'd seen them uh, uh, doing Hey Jude, and that was like, you know, I don't know if I took it all in at the time, but I, I mean, I'd, then, I'd, then I would hear that song on the radio, and I, and, I, um, and a lot of the songs I would hear the Beatles on the radio, but I didn't know at the time who really anybody was, you know. I would hear... You know, I would hear Bill Withers or Harry Nelson or something, and I just loved it all. And but I think it was the first time. And and the the, the next big shift for me in terms of the Beatles was I, I became a huge Elton John fan, 
And he put out this single, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And I thought, wow, that's such an amazing song. And somebody in my class said, that's actually a Beatles song. Right? <laughs> and, and I was like, really? So I went to the library and I took out the double blue Beatles, you know, best of. Yep. You know, they, and, and I took it out of the library and I never returned it, you know. And, uh, but I just remember putting on that record in it because I saw Hey Jude was on there. And, and I was like, I knew every one of those songs. I, didn't, I couldn't believe that they were all the Beatles. It kind of, it was a real life changing moment and then of course you know i had to get all the beetle albums and, and all that hey, hey I, I love that memory because uh, i did the same thing playing road hockey and having the the transistor radio out there uh, so i've got to ask you who who were you when you played road hockey who 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 what player? i was always the i was always the goalie and I, I was a big in fact i i played i i'm a terrible skater but i played goalie one season for in st Catharines. and my you know i loved uh, tony esposito you know, because um, my, my stepfather actually played at one point with Stan Makita, and he was a big Chicago Blackhawks fan. So they became my team. And so whenever we played road hockey, I was always in net, you know. And, uh, you know, it seemed like, I don't know, I thought at the time I wasn't, you know, I'm so bad at it, actually. But, <laughs> hey, but anyway. Hey, that, that's a funny, small world. That's I, I was always the goalie uh, in my former life. I was a play-by-play announcer. So I play goal and I do the play-by-play while I was in net. But uh, anyway. I think Gordani always played goalie, too. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. <laughs> wait, wait, so. See, I have, the only thing I don't have in common with that is that I'm not a great songwriter like you guys. So that's, oh. that's, <laughs> that's where it all ends. Um, uh, well, no. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't even, for me, all I ever wanted to be was a singer. I never even thought it was within my power to be a songwriter until I was 21. So, but anyway. Yeah. Hey, uh, hey, before we get to today's record, I do want to ask you about another songwriter, uh, a guy who you've who you've worked with. Uh, he was a guest on this podcast a few weeks back. His name's uh, Jerry Legere. And you yeah. said, Jerry has that spark in him that all great songwriters have. He's the real deal. What is that yeah. spark you're referring to? Well, I, when I met, you know, it's funny, I met him, I think he was 15 or something. He was working at my local hardware store. And he just had this sort of, like, he, I guess he, you know, recognized me or whatever. And he said, and he had his cassette on him, you know, he goes, and he said something like, you need this in your life or something like really bold, you know, <laughs> like, it wasn't like, would you mind listening to my cassette? It was like, <laughs> you know, you, you can't sort of live without this or something. And I thought that was really cool, you know, so I took it home. And I would get lots of demos from people, and I was never in any position to help anyone, you know. But, but I actually put, you know, I put this one on, and I th- and I thought I was really impressed by it. It had a, a real, kind of like a Joe Strummer thing about it. It was sort of more scrappy, you know, or punky. Like I think his music has gotten a little, uh, like it's sort of moved towards more of like an Americana sort of country rock type thing. But it still, but he always had that edge, you know. And so I just remember going back a few days later and saying, hey, I really enjoyed your cassette. I think you're great. And he's actually the same age as my son. Um, so so it was really cool to see him years later uh, out playing with his band and and then, you know, now put in all these great records and and touring Europe even, you know. And like he's just kind of unstoppable that way. But so that's what I mean by that spark, you know. It was, there was no choice with him. He just, this is what he was going to do. He had to do it. And I had the same thing, you know, and so I just I just recognize that. That's cool. I, 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 he uh, he's a big John Lennon guy, and I, and I didn't know whether you might have chosen a, a John Lennon album as your pick, but uh, I mean, I, you could have picked anything. You went with George Harrison's Cloud Nine. Why is that? 
Well, you know, originally I thought of Tug of War, which was already taken. Uh, I loved them all, and I, I even thought about doing Mind Games, which I, I think is a you know overlooked album by Lennon. But you know, I, I always felt that Cloud Nine was kind of an overlooked album for George. You know, people love to talk about all things must pass or living in the material world. And, um, but this record was, it was kind of like when, when I heard Lennon was coming out with a new album, when, when I heard George was coming out with a new album, I had a similar feeling, you know, because he'd also been kind of, you know, out of it for a while. You know, I hadn't really, I didn't know what he was up to. And so it was kind of exciting, um, just to know that it was on the horizon and it was a very successful album. You know, it was, I, I kind of look at it almost like a comeback album in a way. I think it sold very well. And then through the next few years, you saw a lot of George cause then he was doing the traveling Wilburys and all that stuff, you know? Yep. But, yep. um, so I just, yeah, I just was very excited to have more or, you know, new Beatle, Ask music out there. Well, let me just put some context around it, and we'll jump into the uh, into the first track. So, Cloud Nine was the eleventh studio album released by George Harrison, and the final studio record that would be released while he was still alive. It came after 1981's Gone Tropo, and prior to the posthumous album Brainwash, which came out in November of 2002. There was also a live album in there, Live in Japan, that came out in July of '92. The album was preceded by the number one single got my mind set on you which came out on october 12 1987 cloud nine was released on november 2nd 87 and it was hailed to your point as harrison's return to form by fans and music critics alike it was his biggest selling record since 1971's all things must pass selling over a million records in the u.s uh, cloud nine selling very very well now if we go back to the early 80s after the release of Gontropo, which flopped, uh, failing to reach the top 100 in the U.S. and failing to chart in the U.K., Harrison seems very much retired from the music business. He was putting a lot of time into his production company, Handmade Films, which he had founded in 1978. The mid-80s, not particularly good for any of the former Beatles. Following Tug of War and Pipes of Peace, in 81 and 82, McCartney came out with Give My Regards to Broad Street in October of 84, then Press to Play in August of 86. Neither got much love from music critics or fans. Ringo had released Old Wave in June of 1983, an album that he couldn't even get a label deal for in the U.S. or the U.K. It was released in Canada, and it fared poorly. And not surprisingly... The former Beatles were, in the early mid-80s, they were kind of out of step with what was selling. Springsteen's Born in the USA, Prince's Purple Rain, Madonna, Wham!, Tears for Fears, Dire Straits, Brian Adams. That's what was selling. But in 87, the Beatles started to get some love and sales figures. After years of delays, the Beatles' back catalog started to get CD releases. The first four came out in February of 87. June was the 20th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's. Because of the increasing popularity of CDs, many of what we would refer to as heritage artists, Dylan, Floyd, The Who, and so on, they started to get their back catalogs released on CD, and it kind of sparked a renewed interest in their works that had, had kind of faded a little bit. So possibly... That inspired or nudged Harrison to start considering recording an album of new material. And here's a quote regarding looking for a producer. He was looking for someone who would understand me and my past and have respect for that, who I have great respect for. And then I hit on Jeff Lynn. 
Lynn was a perfect fit. He was the creative force behind the Beatles-influenced ELO, and like Harrison, had largely steered clear of punk and new wave music. And they started hanging out together. Harrison says, we drank red wine together for a year and a half, and then they sort of got into it. Now, I want to ask you, Ron, you've worked, when I look at the producers you've worked with, it's it's a who's who of, of the era. Mitchell Froome, uh, most recently 2013's Forever Endeavor, Steve Earle and Ray Kennedy, back on Blue Boy, uh, Martin... Tereffi, Tereffi, yeah. thank you, Tereffi. Uh, had it written out phonetically, uh, and most curiously, Bob Rock, known for yeah. work with like you know Metallica, Motley Crue, Bon Jovi. Have have all of those guys I just named worked out? And what is the secret ingredient you look for in a producer? Well, I guess you're you know I was in the beginning when I when I chose Mitchell Froom because he did my first three albums. Then we worked later, but I was looking for my George Martin in a way, you know, someone that could. You know, I just wanted to sit, work with the same guy throughout my whole career, and we really and we still get along very well today, you know. But unfortunately, those records we made, they were they did well sort of critically, but they didn't sell well. So that's when I started, you know, the label encouraged me to work with other people, and I did Steve Earle and this and that. But you know, they, they all have their own sort of bag of tricks. I mean, I think Bob Rock would probably be the closest to what sort of Jeff Lynn does. You know what I mean? Like um, Jeff Lynn is, is, he understands the, you know, the language of pop music and what needs to happen. And, you know, with the groove and with the back vocals and all, and sort of Bob, he understands all that stuff too. Um, but, you know, for me, I was just looking for someone that I could trust, someone who, uh, you know, because I, I come in sort of fully formed. I have my songs and I have this thing that I'm going to do. Looking for a guy who could maybe bring something to the table that I never would have thought of. So, um, so yeah, so I'm just, you know, but also it's just like such a personal thing. I, I totally get why George would want to drink wine with Jeff Lynn for you first, you know, because <laughs> you, you know, it's such a, you know, you're in a room with someone for whatever it is, a few weeks or months, and you, you want to be able to, you know, be able to just hang with a person too. And I've always gone on with pretty much everyone I've worked with, you know. Um, so yeah, so it's just this thing that, like with Bob Rock, we, you know, since we've kind of had a falling out actually, but at the time we got along very well. And um, when I met, I met him on the curb uh, after the Junos, we were both waiting for a car to take us to uh, some party or whatever. And, and he just said, just happened to say, you know, hey, I'm a big fan or something. And people say that, but you're always tempted to go, okay, well, name a song then if you're such a big fan, right? You know, <laughs> and, and, but it was just sort of this thing where I got a, a feeling and I, I told my manager, I don't know if Bob would be interested, but if you could reach out to his people and see. And that, you know, and that album probably was my most successful album commercially, you know, and, and so I think, you know, my instincts were, were, were right on, you know, going that direction. Yeah, Long Player, Late Bloomer. It's a, it's a good album. It's a, yeah, I mean, now I have a hard time some, with the slickness of it, but at the time I was in a bit of a slump, and, I, and I, I think George must have felt the same way because Cloud Nine is also his slickest album, you know? Yes, like, yes. You know, and I, I, I bought Gontropo and all the other, and, you know, I was disappointed with Gontropo and some of the other ones, but this one, you know, because, you know, he, he would get, his chord progressions would get a little bit you know, heavy handed sometimes. And, and 
it had been a while since you, you could remember George sort of rocking out. Like, you know, he was a rock and roller at one point. And the thing about Cloud Nine is, is he sort of brings that back into it, you know, just a sort of three chord, four chord type of thing. And and he just sounds like he's having a good time. So album-wise, things started to come together on October of 86 when Harrison invited Lynn to Australia to hang out and go to the Australian Grand Prix race, as you do when you're a multimillionaire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> while they were there, they started to collaborate on a song that ended up being When We Was Fab. The working yeah. title was Aussie Fab. So the sessions proper started at George's Friar Park Studios on January 5th, 1987. And let's slide the CD into the player and cut one is cloud nine a nice bluesy start to the record what do you think about this track well you know it's always you know the first song right it's that leaves the the big impression but i just like all the great george songs you 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 hear the first second you know it's george right you just hear that slide guitar and it's got a really cool groove and so you know right away you're like okay you know you 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 had me (laughs) by the first note and yeah it's just i think it's a really good vocal by george he starts off singing kind of low and it's kind of sexy and you get this um you know, I don't know exactly lyrically what it's about. It seems to be about everyone finding their own version of, of whatever Cloud9 might be. And, uh, you know, and also you're aware, you know, because I'm a real nerd about reading the, like, you know, the liner notes. And, you you know, you realize he's playing with all his best friends, like Clapton's on there and yep. Keltner and Elton John's on there, Ray Cooper. So it just, you could tell he's in a real, uh, he's, you know, in his, again, in sort of a comfort zone type situation and um so yeah so i I, it was a great way to 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 kick it off i thought yeah they recorded the backing tracks for 17 songs between january and march of 87 and then did overdubs later and and to your point ron uh it is the harrison mafia the uh the uh, henley on thames mafia when you look down uh so you got eric clapton's on there uh you've got gary wright who played with Harrison going back to All Things Must Pass days. You've, of course, got Ringo on there. Elton John is on. His old buddy Ray Cooper plays some percussion. So, yeah, he's he is in the comfort zone. Now, I want to ask you, you mentioned chords a moment ago. Um, it's, it's a funny thing with... With a lot of guys, like if you listen to an early Paul McCartney song, or even for that matter, I think an early Ron Sexsmith song, uh, and then you listen to a a later song, there's definitely sort of a... You know, there's there are things that are the same, but there's been a change. You know, you've developed as a songwriter, as your your singing voice, yours has definitely changed since you were a younger man, as as they do for all of us. But for George Harrison, if you go back to his first kind of solo Beatles song, "Don't Bother Me," it kind of even that has sort of those sour chords that that and yeah. the, and he used those right throughout his career like you he really didn't change that much did he or am i missing the mark yeah i mean that that was i think his first attempt at writing a song don't bother me and yeah so right out of the gate you know he has this his own thing because you know imagine being in a band with paul and john and then oh, it's your turn to write a song right and 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 they come out 
with his own sound, um, but still sound, you know, fit into the whole Beatle thing. And, um, you know, and, and so, but there are also songs, when you think of Here Comes the Sun, which is such a beautiful melody, you know, or something. But yeah, he would write these ones that were uniquely George. Um, and I, I can't even really put my finger on what it is about it, but there is, yeah, this kind of dissonance to it. You know, I mean, even Lennon, who wasn't, like like a schooled musician the way you know McCartney was in a way like he would have the strangest chord progression sometimes that you know? that is the dissonance is a perfect I think of a song like uh, I want to tell you and there's just that yeah. kind of weird sour chord that in the you know da 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 with yeah, the piano yeah. and and he does that throughout his career like even on this album it's it's yeah it's cool um, so let's move to cut. Two, and that's what it takes. It was a collaboration between Harrison and Jeff Lynne. Do you like this song? Yeah, it's actually one of my favorites on the record. And now it begins to shine And you find the eyes to see Each little drop The dawn of every day I just love the melody. I love the, um, yeah, we got this world together. The leading, the pre-chorus or whatever it is, it's, it's really strong. Um, and yeah, and he sing, he's singing great on it, you know. I think his voice, it kind of was at this, you know, because sometimes it could sound a little bit thin or on, on different records. Um, but this record, throughout this album, he sings very well. And I, I think it was really... I mean, you know, Jeff Lynne, you couldn't find a bigger Beatle fan than Jeff Lynne, right? I mean, even, you know, even John Lennon, I think, had said at one point that ELO, was, he liked them because he felt they were carrying on as if the Beatles hadn't split up. You know, they were doing things that maybe they would be doing. So, um, so yeah, you know, I just think, it, I, I know they co-wrote a couple on this record, and I think that's, for me, that was, I think, the the most successful one. It was the second uh, collaboration as they were writing it. Uh, the first was when we was fab. The chorus is Lynn's. Uh, the verses yeah. were written together with a few contributions as well from Gary Wright. Okay. Uh, uh, you've got Clapton playing on the track, that nice little solo right near the end of the song. Um, you mentioned... Does this album ever, to you, trip over into sounding a little bit too much like an ELO record? Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I was not a huge fan of, you know, I mean, it, Jeff Lynne kind of ruled the 80s in a way. You know, he did those Tom Petty records and this and that. And there was, a, you know, there's a, something that he does, and it's, again, it's it's a slickness thing. When And, and I think... I, I heard, I don't know if this is true, but he would do a drum sample. Instead of having the drummer play, they would just kind of sample it. Because the drums always sound in perfect time, you know, like, and, um, you know, so it's not always, it's not my favorite uh, production style, you know. Um, but yeah, so I was, you know, when I heard that he was working with George, even though I was excited about the album, I, I was a little concerned that it was going to sound more like Jeff Lynne. And, 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 you know, years later, if I may veer off, when I met McCartney, he told me he was working with Jeff Lynne. And I remember at the time, right, I was sitting at his table and I said, oh, I don't know if I like the sound of that, you know, because, <laughs> um, because for that very reason. And I remember he said, oh, I know exactly what you mean, but I've had a talk with Jeff and blah, blah, blah. And we went into his living room and he played me a couple of songs from his upcoming Flaming Pie album, played it, kind of cranked it on a stereo. And, and it was... 
uh, yeah, and I, I couldn't hear, you know, that Jeff Lynne stamp or whatever, and I was really encouraged by that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, there are moments, like even in the song you mentioned when we was fab, that's, which I like the song, but it's not my favorite on the record, but it definitely has that I'm a Beatle fan. <laughs> yeah, oh uh, yeah, yeah. You know, all these references to the Beatles, and I was a little surprised that George sort of went along with it, actually, but I do like it. Um, but anyway, uh, but I, I think, just like me working with Bob Rock, you know, even though I have a hard time with it now, I think it was absolutely the right direction for him after you know gone trouble and all that stuff <laughs> hey well you, you uh you opened the door so i've, I've got to follow up on it uh meeting paul mccartney uh which most of us will never did what did, did the phone just ring one day and hi it's paul come on over for like what happened How no no that... it was just it was all, all came through squeeze the band squeeze i was touring with uh, my first tour of England, I was opening for Squeeze, and it was wasn't even really Squeeze. It was just Glenn and Chris on a kind of a duo tour, and I was you know doing a forty five minute set. But we were all traveling together and having a really good time. And one night, it was a, after a Saturday show, I was about to go back to my hotel, and Chris told me I should cancel my hotel and come you know and stay at his house for the night because he lived out in the country outside of London. And so, so I'm traveling. After the gig, it's about two in the morning, and Chris says, uh, well, you'll never guess who lives up there, and he points to this street. And so I just thought of the biggest person I could think of. You know, I said, well, is it Paul McCartney? <laughs> and and I was right. So, um, you know, so before we went to bed the night, he said, well, maybe I'll give him a, a call tomorrow and see if they're around. And I just, that just seemed just so impossible to me. So the next morning, sure enough, he called them, and they were just getting up and having breakfast, you know, Linda answered the phone and, and they had heard of me at the time because I was kind of in all the magazines at that point. I was in the mojos and all that stuff. And I think maybe, you know, Elvis Costello had told Paul about me or something. So they, um, so they invited us over. It was like a five minute phone call. The next thing you know, we're in a car, you know, going over Sunday morning breakfast with the McCartney's. It was, it was crazy. So, so yeah, I mean we had a I was there maybe three hours, so we had a nice chat. Mostly asked him about wings. We played a couple songs together. He brought out some guitars, and um, it was just very. I mean, you know, he was in his pajamas, right? He had a t-shirt on and pajamas. It was very. It was just like you know here on a Sunday, basically. So um, yeah, so the whole thing was surreal, and uh, you know, I haven't I haven't met him since, you know, but it was just you know something unexpected on my first uk tour did you did you play him uh, did you play him one of your songs <laughs> no i mean he played a couple of new songs for me at the table from Let flaming pie and it was like uh it was amazing like calico skies i think and he played uh um, little willow beautiful song beautiful song and, yeah and they passed uh got his son to go get me a guitar and i was kind of a you know i remember him sitting there looking at me i had the guitar and i didn't know what to play and and the night before, just by chance, Glenn and I for the encore, Glenn from Squeeze, we we played a version of "Listen to What the Man Said," you know. Ah. Um, and so I said, so I just started going, you know, down, down. And first he kind of, you know, he's looking at me like, are you like, are you sort of, uh, you know, pulling my leg or something? And so I broke in to listen to what the man said, and and he's jamming along with me and singing harmonies and everything. Um, and then of course, after I finished, I apparently had some of the chords wrong. So he showed me which ones were, you know, what, what the right ones were. 
Um, and then I played him. I heard, heard he was a big Brian Wilson fan, so I played him Caroline Noel. Um, so, but I was too kind of a, a bit overwhelmed to play him one of mine at the time. Um, so I just played him those those two songs man that is you can ron you can dine out on that story for the rest of your days that is a great story well, it definitely you know even to this day it still comes up quite a bit but no it's it's, it's you know I mean, and linda was so nice and you know she made me really feel at home so anyway it was yeah it was a very pleasant memory hey, well if, if if you ever come back you'll have to do flaming pie that's one of my favorite mccartney records great record okay um so yeah. just in terms of collaborating, I'm not going to ask you to pick one because you've collaborated with a lot of people, but I'm going to name a couple and get you mm -hmm. to maybe tell me a quick story behind it. So first, how about Ray Davies? Oh, well, you know, Ray's like God to me, you know, I mean, as big as the Beatles are or anyone, I, Ray was the reason I became a songwriter. So... So years later, you know, um, I never knew really if he'd heard of me or anything like this until I, I was asked to be on a Ray Davies tribute album. And it was the first time where he'd ever mentioned me in an interview or something. And he, and I, you know, my song actually became the title song of, it was called, oh, This Is Where I Belong. Um, so a few years later, I got asked, you know, they have this thing called Meltdown Festival in London. Yep. And every year it's curated by, like one year it's David Byrne or Scott Walker. And, and this particular year, it was curated by Ray Davies. And so they asked me to come and play, um, which is very exciting. And so I went to, you know, Royal Festival Hall and Ray was there. He was, uh, hang we were hanging out backstage. And, um, but I think prior to going over, his assistant, you know, asked if I wanted to do a song with them. And I was like, oh my God, I, I know so many King songs. So I gave him a list and I had about 20 songs on it. And Ray picked the song Misfits. So, so that night, you know, uh, well, we worked it up backstage in the dressing room. And, and then that night he came out, you know, and sang Misfits with me. Um, I think the, a couple of days later, he asked me to come down to Kong Studios um, because, you know, he had done an album of duets. I don't know if you remember with Jackson Brown and all these people. So he was thinking about doing duets volume two. And so I, I went down. It was so surreal being with Ray all day because it was just me and him in the studio. And, and uh, you know, it, it was kind of run down actually, but he sort of got it working and, and we recorded this sort of the, you know, this kind of crude version of Misfits. I was sort of doing all the work. I laid down the guitar track. I laid down the lead. I did a scratch vocal and this and that. Um, but we, yeah, we spent a few hours, you know, he made me a nice cup of tea and showed me around. There was like a billiards room in the studio and this and that. Um, it was just like a dream to, to actually show up at the door in Muswell Hill, you know, knock and then have Ray answer the door. And, and, you know, he's not a very overtly social person, you know, like he's not a, I mean, I, I'm sure he is with some people, but we don't, you know, he, he seemed a bit shy and I'm kind of shy anyway. So I think it was a little bit awkward. Um, he did have a, a sort of someone in there, a woman filming the whole thing too. And it, but for some reason, the volume two never came out and I never saw any of the footage or anything, but, um, and then, you know, to, to end the story about a year later, he was in Toronto and I got a call to come down and sing Misfits with him at his show. And that was cool too. Uh, how about your collaboration with, 
Chris Martin of Coldplay. I mean, beautiful song, the without Chris Martin version, Golden Them Hills. And I know there's a lovely story behind that. But then uh, now mm. did, did you not slide that onto Cobblestone Runway as, as sort of a hidden track, the, the duet version? Yeah, it was um, they, it's sort of a bonus track because my version is on there. And, well, you know, what happened was Chris, Chris had been even before I met him, he was a fan of my Blue Boy album and he was talking about it a lot in the press and um, everyone kept telling me, hey, Coldplay loves you or something. And we finally met in Australia and we did a show with them in Sydney. And then about a year later, I end up on this, you know, the same label as Coldplay. And so my album was coming out around the same time as their, their second album. So it just seemed like an obvious choice you know and they asked us if we would open for them um but but the thing is they were mixing my album in la i think i was at david foster's studio and for some reason i don't know how this happened but chris martin was there or maybe heard and asked if he could come and listen to it and i was i was in europe at the time um so i got this call from my producer martin treffy saying that hey uh, chris martin is coming by to hear uh, the record um and and martin thought maybe he should ask Chris to play piano on Golden Hills because my piano is terrible. And I said, uh, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, and I never thought any more of it. So when I got home, I get the CD in the mail and it says Golden Hills Remix. Um, and so I'm listening to it and the second verse comes on and it's not me singing. And I got really upset. I was like, what the, you know, and then I didn't even think it was Chris Martin. I didn't know who it was. I was like, what's going on here? And then, so then I finally find out, oh, well, Chris thought my piano playing was fine and he offered to, to sing on it, which was very nice of him. Um, but then there came this dilemma where, you know, obviously the label's going to want that version on the record because it's Chris Martin, but I really like my original versions, you know, so it just became this thing. I said, well, could, is it possible we could have my version on there? And then at the end, we could put on this bonus remix version and everyone, then everyone can be happy, which which they were more than happy to do. And, you know, and then we did a video together. So, but I remember telling Chris Martin, I go, are you sure you want to do this? Because if, if you do this, the labels are going to be, they're not going to leave you alone. They're going to want you to, you know, do a video and they're going to want you to you know, <laughs> appear on a television show with me and all this stuff. But he was so generous. And, and uh, you know, we had a great time on the road. We did actually two full tours with them. Um, and and as, uh, all along the way, they just kept getting bigger and bigger because when we started, we were still playing clubs and, you know, small theaters. And next thing you know, we're doing Madison Square and, you know, two nights at the Hollywood Bowl and all this. So it became, uh, you know, and then it was kind of cool to see being on the inside of all that, watching how they dealt with it, you know. Yeah, they just took off. Uh, I mean, monster, monster band. Now, last guy I want to ask you about, um, songwriting royalty of uh, you know legend all over the world as a poet and as a writer but leonard cohen that, that must have yeah. been something well yeah um leonard uh was very big at, you know in the early days of my attempts at songwriting and um you know and it, because of my teenage years i never really listened to leonard or light for anything i was already always listening to the kinks or the beatles and stuff so when I discovered Leonard, it changed my whole thing. 
know, I, I just thought, well, I didn't even know if it was okay to listen to the Beatles anymore after I discovered John Leonard in a way. <laughs> it took, took me a while to figure out that, well, they're great and he's great and everyone's great. So, so yeah, so years later, because, you know, you remember Leonard, it kind of dropped off the earth for a while. You know, he became a monk and he wasn't making records or touring. But then we heard that he had a book coming out. And Indigo asked if, you know, if I would come down and, you know, they were doing a kind of a tribute to Leonard and the Bare Naked Ladies and stuff. And I guess they asked me because I had recorded Heart With No Companion on my first album. And so I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to be there. So, so I show up at the bookstore and they take me downstairs where all the musicians were. And there's Leonard and they're all in a kind of circle singing Leonard Cohen songs. And I was with my wife and I'm kind of, again, I'm sort of shy. So I'm kind of laying back watching and Leonard sees me. And he comes over and he puts his arm in my arm and brings me into the circle, you know, and, and they, you know, pass me guitar. And again, like everyone else I love, I can play a whole bunch of songs of Leonard. So I started singing all these Leonard ones and he's singing. So when it came time to, to do the show, because Leonard was originally just going to listen, I could tell that he really wanted to sing. He was having such a good time. So I did Heart With No Companion and I was supposed to sing uh, So Long Marianne. And, and I, so we said to Leonard, go, Hey, you know, you should come up and, you know, they don't want to hear us sing. They want to hear you sing. There, there's like well, 5,000 people on the street. Um, Leonard said, well, I'll come up and I'll sing on the choruses, you know? And so we're like, okay, great. So he comes up and I'm singing, I sing the first verse. You can actually see this on YouTube, but out of the corner of my eye, I could see Leonard there. And, and I was going, man, I really shouldn't be singing this. This should be Leonard. And so I kind of gesture uh, for him to take over and and so he comes up to me. He goes, he goes, "What's the first line, you know, of the second verse?" So if you see on the video, he keeps looking at me when it, whenever it's time to start a new verse, and I kind of feed him just the first line. <laughs> and Andy's, you know, muscle memory comes back, and people were so emotional to hear him sing again. Um, and it wasn't that long after that that he started to tour again, and he toured pretty much right up until the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But yeah, you know, I was, and I, I met him a couple other times, just that the sort of, you know, songwriter award type things. And he was always very nice and just, a, you know, a total gentleman. Yeah, and I, I mean, I won't be the first person who's told you this, but especially your early stuff, uh, when I, uh, speaking with the angel jumps out at me where I go, yeah, you can really, the way it was miked and the playing and your voice, you 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 can hear, for me, you can really hear a Leonard Cohen oh, yeah. influence. Well, that, well that's, that was the Leonard influence from right from the get-go from, from that song. That was like one of the first songs I wrote when I became a songwriter. And it was very influenced by, because I, I, I was living in Quebec and I, I bought... The best of Leonard, it was in a bargain bin for about two bucks or something. (laughs) And I just kept playing it over and over, probably driving everyone up the wall. But yeah, I was very influenced by, you know, Suzanne and all those those early songs of his. Well, let's jump back to George Harrison and uh, cut three, Fish on the Sand, a catchy tune. And they started writing it the evening before the sessions were due to start and later down. I know you're in the sun I know you're close to everyone At times it's like you don't have a hold on Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of uh, classic George in a way, you know, like, like the things he's singing about and 
um, you know, I'm not so much of a man. I don't know. It just, it just sounds like, uh, yeah, you're in the George zone the minute, the minute it, it sort of starts. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, again, this album just goes from strength to strength, you know? I mean, the, especially the, um, you know, the, the the sequence of the first side. I love that. I love those lines. I'm not so much of a man. I'm like a fish on the sand. Uh, I, I yeah. just love the lyric. Yeah, it kind of like on his last album, he did that one Pisces fish too, you know, like he's, um, yeah, he's, there's always kind of this sort of spiritual component or philosophical component to his songs that, um, again, I don't have the lyrics in front of me, but, but the, but yeah, he manages to put all that stuff into a catchy pop song, which is kind of cool. Uh, indications are they were considering this as a, a candidate for a single at one time. There was a Bernie Grunman did a master uh, back in October of 87, but it never came out. Now, I, I love that. I mean, I love so many Harrison lyrics, and uh, I, I don't know if you're a guy who can quote lyrics, but do, do you have a favorite Harrison lyric sort of off the top of your head, one that really has stayed with you or that, that you enjoy? Um, oh, God. Yeah, I, I do feel a little bit stumped, but, um, uh, you know, I always love, you know, just the chorus of Blow Away, you know. All, mm-hmm. I, all I've got to do is to love you. All, all I've got to be is be happy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, you could say that to yourself over and over and it's like a mantra, you know. Um, uh, you know, but yeah, I mean, after I get off the phone, I'll probably think of a whole, you know, <laughs> even just, just here comes the sun, you know, it's just, it's gorgeous, you know. Well, you do a lovely version of, that I've seen uh, of uh, uh, Give Me Love, Give Me Life, Give Me Peace on Earth. Uh, That's probably my favorite George song of all time, Give Me Love. Um, yeah, I mean, it just says it all, you know, um, and it's just a repetition, right? It's, it's no verse or anything, it's just the same verse over and over. I mean, there's no, without change, and it and it sort of takes on a, 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 this sort of, a, this power because of that, you know? Give me love, give me love, give me peace on earth, give me light, give me life, keep me Listener, look for look for the video on YouTube. I think there are a couple performances of this, but there's one that the band did in a bar in Cork, Ireland, and I, I don't know if you remember it, Ron, but it was it was so cool because you you started the song on guitar. And, oh yeah, and I broke a string. Yeah, and then you went okay. We're moving to piano, and then you went down and you sat, and and it was just uh, like it was just flawless. But who was the slide guitar player? Because he was kicking ass. Well, that's Timbo Vacanti. Oh. Um, yeah, who played? Uh, we who played with me for a number of years, uh, you know, live, and a super solid player. Obviously, a big fan of the Beatles and all that. But yeah, when you know, over the years, we did a whole. We used to do Old Brown Shoe as well, another George Harrison one, which is kind of a tricky, tricky song to play. But um, yeah, so he nailed the the slide part. I ended up actually recording that song for, you know. Uh, I don't know if it was Uncut or Mojo. They would do these records sometimes that would come with the magazine. And it was like a George issue. And so they had all these different artists covering George. And so I did a a version where I kind of play all the instruments except for drums of Give Me Love. Um, 
It's out there somewhere. I don't know where you can find it. But that is, it was really, really fun to record it. That is cool. Uh, Tim is going to be a guest in a couple of weeks. Uh, he picked Hard Day's Night as, uh, as oh, his album. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to talking to him. Uh, and, and now I'm going to ask him about the about playing that slide part with you for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and he, you know, he plays with Burton too. You could talk to him all about that too. So. Uh, awesome. Uh, he, and yeah. and uh, to close the circle, he produced uh, some of the early work of uh, Jerry Legere. That's true. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so cut four, just for today. <laughs> Some people think it was influenced by his dear friend Derek Taylor's participation in Alcoholics Anonymous, just sort of that whole just mm-hmm. for today. What do you get out of the song? Um, I never, I didn't know anything about that. I mean, so Derek, was Derek Taylor, had he passed at that point or was he still with us? He was um, still with us at that point, yeah. Yeah, because George never, he he wasn't never, uh, like he still drank right up to the end, right? As far as I know, I don't could uh, be wrong. Uh, no, I, I I don't recall reading yeah. anything about him being an AA. No. Yeah, the only thing I remember about the, to say about this song is, um, it sounds to me like a song that could have been on an earlier George album. You know, like Living in the Material World or something. You know, like the just the whole kind of mood of it, and um, you know, he would have these these kind of um, introspective ballads. You know, and and the, and. So that one, it just it just felt like kind of classic George to me. It, it reminds me a little of "Isn't It a Pity." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's sort of what I was getting at, like one of those type of songs, or, or like um, uh, you know, what's the one on like on "Living in the Material World." Uh, you know, some people just won't accept change. Oh yeah, or, you yeah, know, like yeah, what, yeah. Like whatever that song is called. Um, yeah. So I mean. Uh, you know, he had these, he, he could do that, you know, he could be um, doing a catchy pop song one minute, you know, and then, you know, have one of these more subdued things. Um, there's a song, I don't know, we're going to get to it later, but there's a song on the other side, uh, someplace else that I really, you know, in terms of the ballads on this record, that's probably my favorite one. You know? uh, the Light That Has Lighted the World was the song we were thinking about. That's it, from, that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah which is another, yeah, yeah. He, he kind of does some of those uh, sort of dirge-like songs. A, uh, um, yeah, a, yeah int- he's got a, sort of these are mournful kind of songs or regretful songs, and um, yeah. And you can you can kind of, again, the, in the, you can hear it in the chord progressions, you know, that it's George, you know, the kind of chords he's going to, or the ma- kind of melodies that are, you know, that he chooses. I mean, I, I don't know if uh, if it's a good analogy or not, but when you, when you talk about kind of mournful or, or regretful, um, I... I I'm trying to think. Was it cobblestone? That, that's. I mean, that was a tough time. Do, do you look back on that as sort of one of those? Yeah, that's where my head was at the time. Well, the thing is, it was sort of a tough time, but the, that album actually lyrically is quite hopeful. You know, because I was writing these songs like "Former Glory" and all that to try to, uh, you know, cheer myself up. Um, you know, because I think "Whereabouts," my third album, was kind of more downbeat even blue boy you know those were uh, i think i got painted early on with a sort of melancholy brush 
but with cobblestone i think i started to sort of come out of it and the album sort of became increasingly more um uh just upbeat i think lyrically more hopeful um you know so so yeah, yeah. but it, i've definitely been there it, it, it's it's funny how you get painted isn't it because I, I i um I'm, i mean yeah there's there's that aspect to your work but then i also hear or read more like it. I love reading lyrics and stories behind songs and your, your website is great for that where you talk, but there's a lot of wordplay. There's a lot of clever kind of fun wordplay yeah. there too, which I think people miss, but that's well, I know, I know, you know, on my Twitter page, I'm just doing stupid jokes all the time because <laughs> I, I just don't know what else to do with it. And, but I think, uh, yeah, you know, they did this documentary. I mean, I think the director was out to do a kind of a sad movie and it, it bothered me because my, you know, there's, most most of the time when we're on the road, my band and I were just kind of laughing our heads off, right? And it's just like, there's no evidence of that in the film. But um, So uh, a little bit of trivia from just for today. Dwayne Eddy was hanging around. He was recording a solo record at the time using George's studio. And wow. uh, he added a guitar part. And uh, I guess it, it was scrubbed during the final mix. So somewhere out there in the vaults, there's oh a... Oh, my God. Yeah, there's a version with Dwayne Eddy playing guitar on it. So Oh, I gotta look for that. <laughs> Cut five. And this is love. I love this tune it was the third single released from the album didn't chart unfortunately for george in the uk or usa but and then this was a harrison lynn collaboration This is one of my favorites on the record. It's just right, you know, just from the moment it starts, it's just, is you know, it's the kind of song I, I just gravitate towards, you know, it's just, it's so catchy. And I think he's singing it really good, you know? Um, and I love all the, you know, come, 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 all that sort of stuff going on. And it's, again, it's got that, it's a little heavy on the Jeff Lynn production, I think sometimes, but um, I'm surprised that it didn't do better because I think it's a much better single than when we was fat, you know. It just, it just kind of rolled down your windows kind of song. Um, you know, I love that when in the last verse when he's like, you know, it also can be, you know, overcome. You know, like he's just singing great on it. Yep. And uh, yeah, so it, it's probably, it's definitely in my uh, maybe top three favorites from this record. Uh, George says, This Is Love was a song where I said, why don't you write me a tune? So he came down with lots of bits and pieces on cassette and almost uh, let me choose. I routined that song with him and we wrote the words together. In fact, he had so many permutations of how that song is, he can still write another three songs out of the bits left. So it sounds like a, that's a George yeah. Harrison. Now, the real story of this song, to me, oh. is that it served as the catalyst for the start of the Traveling Wilburys. And, okay. And I'll tell you how that happened. So they're about to release it as an A-side. 
and they needed a B-side. So Harrison initially had the idea. He wanted to do, he was talking to Lynn. He wanted to do an instant karma thing, write a song that night, cut it the next day. So he and Lynn were in California, and they needed a studio on short notice. So as you do when you're a, a big rock star, you ring you your buddy. Bob Bob. Yeah, you call Bob. <laughs> say, hey, can we use your garage studio in Malibu? And they called Tom Petty. He brought over a guitar that George had left at his house. Jeff Lynn was there working with Roy Orbison. So boom, they all show up and of course they they do handle me with care which mo austin at warner heard and said uh guys that's not going to be a b-side <laughs> you're, right. you're you're gonna do an album are you a wilbury's guy do you like them wrong yeah i don't i don't love them as much as some people i mean the first album was kind of neat because it was it was like you know they sort of tried to do it like the secret band or whatever um and it, it, I mean, it's hard not to like it because they're just having fun. I mean, it's Dylan's doing this Springsteen, you know, Tweeter and the Monkey Man thing, and <laughs> and he's singing really good, you know, because he made a few kind of bizarre albums before that one, like Knocked Out, Loaded, and this and that. But so he felt like he was kind of back, on, you know, on form. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit. It doesn't really move me or anything, you know. It's kind of a silly album in a way, you know. The, the, but I. So yeah, I mean, some people just are over the top about that record. I mean, it's it's again, but it's a catchy album. It's a fun album, but it doesn't. It's not like when you hear George singing "Give Me Love" or Dylan doing something that's more, you know what I mean? That's more, uh, you know, intense or more. You know, it just sounds like they're all having a good time. It came out in October of '88. Spent 50 weeks. That's five old weeks in the U.S. chart. Sold over three million copies uh, in the U.S. Six hundred thousand in Canada. It was, it was a monster. I, uh, I remember at the time people would go, "Well, who'd have thought it would be George that was having all this success in the '80s?" And because Paul couldn't really get a arrested at the time you know yeah and, well yeah he, yeah yeah paul was in well like i said earlier he was in a slump like he had broad street and then uh uh yeah. and then um uh well he, even um like flowers on the dirt came out around then which i don't know how well it did but i remember he played uh rogers the rogers stadium whatever in toronto i couldn't find anybody to go with me and they're like why do you want to go see him for you know and i'm like seriously he's a beetle and yeah. and it, you know but you know, then you know, a few years later, he was sort of became back in vogue again. You know, and he's the last bunch of years he's been revered. You know, well. So speaking of the Beatles, we move on to cut six. When yeah. we was fab, uh, started <laughs> the first track. They start. I mean, the video Ringo playing. I love this song. You, you say you're not as as keen on it. You're like I love it just because of the nostalgia. I guess. Back then, long time ago, when grass was green Woke up in a daze Arrived like strangers in the night Long time ago, when we was fab It's just sort of, again, it's a bit like a that traveling Wolverine thing, you know, it's a bit sort of self-conscious, you know, like, I mean, they're having fun with it. So I have this, I try not to get, you know, because again, they're just sort of having fun and Beatle references. It's almost like when Tears for Fears did Sowing the Seeds of Love or yes, something. Yes, you know? yes. <clears throat> and I get, a, I, I, I get, I could see ELO doing it, but it, it's weird when I just found it odd that George would sort of go along with it in a way. Um, 
you know, all these little, you know, you know, I don't know. Again, I don't, I don't think it's a bad song or anything, but it, it just sort of, um, it just seemed a little bit, uh, superfluous or something. Well, it, <laughs> uh, it, the way, according to Harrison, uh, they, they sort of did yeah. the basic tracks and then he said, I'm reading a quote from him. Every so often we took the tape of fab out and we overdubbed more. And it developed yeah. and took shape to where we wrote words. Uh, he said it was an odd, ex- odd experience who, like you by the sounds of it, Ron, he normally yeah. says, I've finished all the songs I've done, with, with the yeah. exception of maybe a few words here and there. But he said, Jeff doesn't do that. He's making them up as he goes along. And I guess it was yeah. kind of a long process. Can you hear that when you hear the song? Yeah, I, it just feels a bit, you know, labored over, and I mean, it's catchy, right? Like I like that piano line, ding, 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 <laughs> you know. But it's just, it's a sort of thing where, um, yeah, they're singing about. I think even probably Paul's written a song looking back on the Beatle days or whatever, you know. And uh, John would never do that, you know what I mean? Like I don't. I, I mean, obviously, all the Beatles solo albums. The thing that were great about them, even when the albums weren't so great, is they they carried on in that tradition of Beatle fun, you know, in the studio with little asides and, you know, jokey bits that they would put on the records. And, and so in that way, it, it's, it's fun, you know, and at the end we hear a bit of, I don't know if it's a real sitar, but you know, there's a bit of sitar playing at the end of the song. Um, it, it's, you know, when you think of George and the sitar, it's a very spiritual, personal thing. And, and, and in this, in this song, it's sort of used more in a kind of, ironic kind of way you know yes. sort of a joke jokey way yeah so um but again i'm just being like a scrooge about it i mean i i did like the i do love this album i did you know the video was fun to see you know i would see ringo carrying his drums in or whatever he's doing <laughs> um but yeah you know it's kind of like i really like the song uh you know like, like the, all those years ago they wrote for lennon when he died mm-hmm. which was you know singing about the beatles and stuff but not in a way that was sort of goofy you know like this one just seems like but again i guess who better than george to sing it right i mean he was a beetle so yeah it, it is it's it's kind of and the british have a lovely uh, which which as canadians i don't think we have um i i was lucky enough to live over there for nine years in london and the one thing yeah. i say about british people is not every british person is funny but every british person is prepared for the prospect of being funny uh, yeah. And by that I mean they always they'll always take the piss they'll always find an angle right and and, yeah. and I found it is I, like very much tongue in cheek with the sitar and wearing the Sergeant Pepper costume and the the whole yeah. like I think it was meant in fun myself yeah and it has that kind of mystical melody thing that George was so good at you know yeah um, oh I don't know if that was him or Jeff or whatever but but Jeff obviously did his Beatle homework, you know. I mean, he's, he's <laughs> right. You know, we heard an ELO song the other day coming home from St. Catharines, and it was, and caught my wife was actually, is that the Beatles? I go, no, no, that's ELO. <laughs> you know, because they sort of carried it on, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, no, I've actually tried to approach Jeff Lynn a few times about maybe doing a record, but I don't know if he knows me at all. And I, I you know, I would get, I get these re- response from his people saying, oh, you know, Jeff, you know, very, flattered or, or something you know but i it's i don't see it happening but but i know. think that would be a really fascinating fit i hope it does happen uh, i, I think yeah, that well, you would never be know cool. i mean I, I i may try again that would be and of course you got ringo you know with the 
one, two. The count into the track and the, the, the yeah. drum fills are so Ringo. Now, you met Ringo doing, uh, for those of you who, who don't live in the UK, there's a fantastic music show that's on that's like nothing you've ever seen. It's called Later with Jules Holland. And you have Jules Holland, former piano player in Squeeze, and he's kind of the ringmaster. And you have all these stages around a circle. And it's just like you go from one superstar act to the next to the next. It's amazing. You were yeah. on this show and you met Ringo. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, it was actually my third time on the show. This was in 2011, and I was r- kind of riding high with my Long Player album, which it did very well over there. I had two songs in the top ten, and so I was asked to come on the show to sing uh, by myself, sadly. I would have loved to have my band, but just to play t- the, the two singles. And then Jules actually asked me if I would sing a song with a uh, Charlie Rich song with him, because he knows I'm a big fan of Charlie Rich. So all I knew going into the show was that PJ Harvey was on it and some guy I'd never heard of named Ed Sheeran was going to be on it. <laughs> and um, so anyway, because I didn't have a band with me, when I wasn't playing, I was supposed to sit at a table on the side of the, of the, of the circle. And, and there was another chair there and, and I'm like asking, you know, the stage person, I go, well, who, are, you know, somebody joining me here and, and she said, you know, yes, actually, uh, Ringo Starr. And I was like, what? I couldn't believe it. And so right before the show starts, in walks Ringo, and he comes right at me with his hand outstretched, you know. He's like, you're wrong, he says to me. And I'm like, oh, and you're Ringo. <laughs> and so we had this nice, you know, 20-minute chat before the show got started where um, – because he looked, first of all, he looked amazing. I don't know what his secret. And I was, because uh, I'm always battling my weight. I'm going up and down and this and that. And and, and he just looked so fit and, and everything. So we're we're just sort of making small talk about stuff like that. And we also, I talked a little bit about Nilsson with him because I'm a huge fan. And I knew that they were really close friends. You know, and then the show starts. and um, But the thing that was cool is that whenever I was playing out of the corner of my eye, I could see Ringo kind of you know, bobbing his head or whenever I would sit back down at the table after my song, he would sort of pat me on the shoulder and all that stuff. So, um, so it's just really cool. And I think he knew that I had met Paul or as well or something, but, um, yeah, it was just unexpected because I didn't even know he was going to be on the show. That is, a, that's another great story, my friend. That's to, to, to sit there and chit chat with Ringo. Uh, man, yeah. that's pretty cool. And, and are you a, uh, I know musicians come down on, on either side of this. Are you a Ringo guy in terms of his drumming? Oh, oh yeah, I always loved his drumming. Always loved, I loved everything about him. You know, he's just such a likable guy. I like his singing voice. You know, I, I have, um, I have three of his solo albums. I have Ringo, Goodnight Vienna, and uh, Boku of Blues, I think it's called. Um, and that, you know, and all those albums, I think, did sort of quite well for him. I'm kind of surprised Jeff Lynne never got Ringo in the studio and, and made a comeback album for him. You know, yeah. I think they they could have done something really good. Yeah. But uh, no, I like Ringo. I mean, he's just a, a no nonsense drummer. You know, he was solid. His fills were cool. You know, and just seeing him played, like when you see him playing on the I Won't Back Down video with Tom Petty, just his body language, it just makes the song swing a bit more. just feels, I don't know if he actually played on the record, but it, it just feels really good, you know. Yeah, you're, you're not the first musician who I've heard use that term swing. He's, he's got yeah. a real swing to him. Um, and yeah. I, I'm not a musician, so I don't, I don't quite know what that means, but a lot of guys say that. 
Well, I think Keltner, who's the greatest drummer ever, I think he always says Ringo's his favorite, so, you know. Well, that's pretty high praise. I would like to take a moment here just to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, uh, I invite you to check out a few of the other episodes in the Walrus Was Paul podcast series. For example, Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps of Blue Rodeo do a great job talking about the Beatles' mid-career transition album, Rubber Soul. So you can take a look for that one. Tyler Stewart, the Bare Naked Ladies drummer, had a lot of fun talking to me about Revolver, another great album and a great guest, Tyler was. And speaking of the Bare Naked Ladies... Former Bare Naked Lady and now solo artist Stephen Page had a very fond look at Paul McCartney's 1982 solo record, Tug of War. That's also a good listen. You can find all of those podcasts wherever you get your podcasts or head to the podcast webpage, romycast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com. Now, the best way to not miss an episode is to simply hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you get your podcasts, and you will be notified whenever a new episode drops. Uh, Let's move to cut number seven, and uh, for me, one of the standout tracks on the record, Devil's Radio. Do you like it? Yeah, and it's actually uh, the first song on side two if we're going vinyl. Radio. It's one of my favorites. Um, again, uh, the, the thing I really like about this record overall was that George was, was a rock and roller again. You know, um, he was having fun, and this was before the Wilburys and all that. Um, yeah, so he was he was just having a good time, and Eric Clapton played some great lead on this song. Um, yeah, you know, it's just it, I like the the message of the song. You know, because George. Uh, uh, kind of like Lennon could, could be a bit grumpy. You know, every now and then we have these sort of grumpy songs about the state of the world and and this and that, like you know, uh, cheer down or whatever. Or uh, I'm trying to think of another one, but um, or like brainwashed. You know, that song itself was kind of grumpy. Um, but this one has got a little more humor. I love when, um, yeah. Oh no, I, I was I was getting ahead of myself. I was thinking of a line from Wreck of the Hesperus, but no. But De- Devil's Radio is just a fun track all around. Yeah. Inspired by a church billboard that he saw when he was driving his kid to school, uh, and oh. it said, Gossip, the devil's radio, don't be a broadcaster. Uh, oh, see, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's, and that's such a catchy, like, uh, hook, you know, gossip, gossip. You yeah. can almost hear the Everly Brothers doing it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's exactly what the song is, an attack on, on gossip, uh, trivia, cynical talk radio, and, and so on. And I love that line where he goes, you ask me why I don't hang out much, I wonder why you can't see. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's he, so great. Yeah, he, and he always, you're right, he always had uh, a very personal theme to him because I, I, I think I always... Remember the Beatles anthology, and there was—I'm I'm paraphrasing—but he had a line, something like, uh, "Well, all the all the young teeny boppers gave their money, but the Beatles gave their nervous systems." Uh, yeah, and he always was—he always had a, an uneasy relationship with fame. I think. I think more than the others. Yeah, I mean, he really didn't plan on all that, and 
Uh, I mean, I'm sure, you know, it had a lot of perks to it, and I, I think he enjoyed all that. But, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, you know, he didn't really want to, you know, I think Paul was probably the most overtly friendly one of the band, you know, like he, um, and he's, you know, uh, I think John, George, and Ringo wouldn't suffer fools gladly, you know. Uh, one of the standout tracks in the record, great piano contribution from Elton John. And mm-hmm. and I, I've read before and I've heard you say, Elton was a boyhood hero of yours. And, and you initially, is this true, mm-hmm. you, you wanted to be a piano player and not a guitar guy. Yeah, and I still do. I mean, we were supposed to get the family piano when I was a kid because it was just sitting at my grandparents' house. And it ended up going to my aunt, Donna's place, which, uh, you know, and they just used it for, to put plates on. It was a total waste of a, <laughs> I think if I would have gotten it when I, at that time, I probably would have been pretty good now. I mean, all my heroes, Elton John and Charlie Rich and, um, you know, Nilsson, I mean, they were all piano players. Um, so I had to sort of make up for lost time when I started making albums in my thirties, Whenever there was downtime in the studio, I would always head straight for the piano and just try to figure it out or try to get a little better on it. Until the point where my most recent album, every song I I sing on piano. There's not even any acoustic guitar on it. Um, So yeah, it's it's. uh, But Elton John, definitely seeing him rocking out behind a piano, I always thought that was a cool look. Did Did you ever meet Elton? Yeah, I've met him a few times. Um, The first time I met him. I got invited, I knew Ryan Adams' bass player, and I got invited to go see Ryan at Lee's Palace. I didn't know Ryan or I didn't know his music at all, but I knew that Elton John was saying nice things about him. <clears throat> so I, I'm at Lee's Palace in Toronto. I don't know if you've, if, have you been there before? Yes, I have, yes. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's not the, it's not a palace, you know, let's just say that. <laughs> and so we were in this kind of crappy dressing room, and Ryan was just about to go on, and the door in the from the alley the back alley opens up and in walks elton john and his security guard and because they were coming in we sort of got ushered out my wife and i but as we were being ushered out i could see elton john's eyes bulging like he recognized me and he's sort of like like kind of smiling and as i'm being thrown out of the dressing room you know and so i'm like so for the first part of the show i'm i'm standing just outside the dressing room watching ryan play and, I, and Elton John, you know, every now and then he's looking over at me and I'm looking over at him. And then next thing I know, I look and I in the dressing room and, and my wife is in the dressing room with Elton John with her arm around him. And they're kind of, you know, and they're dancing or something. And then they're both waving me over. So I go back in and, you know, we enjoyed the show. And we actually got on stage and did Rocket Man with Ryan for the encore. Um, but after the show, you know, we were, we had a minute or so to chat before he got ushered out. Um you know, but I had a chance to tell him, you know, that I was a member of the fan, his fan club when I was a kid, and my first show was him. And <clears throat> and throughout the years, you know, I mean, um, for example, one time, like he's called me home a few times, which is pretty surreal. Like uh, one time, I had uh, came home from a tour and I was feeling really tired and discouraged. And the first message I get on the phone is from Elton John telling me how much he loves my latest album, and 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 then he gave me his number. He wanted me to call him, so I called him and. Uh, most recently we went to see him on his farewell tour at, in Toronto and he gave me a shout out and dedicated a song to me in the, in front of all those people. And it just, uh, and then we went backstage after to, to say hi to him. So it's just been, um, yeah, you know, 
as surreal as meeting Paul, just getting to know him and being able to email him and whatever. It's, it's just kind of... Uh, beyond belief you know. and I, I'm, I'm sure you do anyway Ron uh, you, but it, it's uh, researching to to have this chat with you the, the one of the things that just jumps out in bold letters is uh, the number of you know very people with tremendously respected bodies of work respecting your body of work I mean it's high praise from your from your peers I guess and um, well well yeah I mean it was very um it was like, you know, because I didn't have a leg to stand on initially. So when my album, my first album came out, so to have all these people from, I guess, the old guard, you could say, the people that I grew up listening to saying nice things, it, it really, it, it helped me, you know, hang in there and, and have a career. And, uh, you know, so I, I certainly didn't, I never imagined that would ever happen. Um but I, I think that is what it is, is they see that, that I have so much respect for what they did and also that I've been trying to kind of follow in their footsteps in a way. Um, even, though, even though I've never had the, anywhere near the su- success that they've had, I think they, they, they just know that what, kind of what I'm about. Well, I, I want to kind of tie this in because, okay, so uh, Devil's Radio, I said, was inspired by that <laughs> church billboard that Harrison saw. So just something he saw that, ah, they, you know, that could be a really good title for a song and, and away he went. And going back to your early days, one of the stories that I love uh, to, to take it back then was you did a lot of your writing out walking around while you had a job as a courier. Yeah. Is that still kind of how you write <laughs> the courier yeah. side, the courier part aside? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's how I've always done it. Um, just walking around because, um, it's like, I always sort of call it the Winnie the Pooh method, you know, cause I walk and I hum to myself and then I sing, I come up with lyrics and, um, it's like when you have something mindless, like cutting the grass where you're, you're not in danger of, of hurting anyone, then your mind is free to wander. And, um, when you're, you know, you, when your hands are occupied doing something else. So, so yeah, I mean, I wrote most of the songs, I think for my first two albums as a courier, um, and then I would get home and I'd have to try to figure out, Oh, well, first of all, I'd have to sing them all day to myself. So otherwise I'd forget them. Um, and then I'd come home and, when the, when the kids were in bed, I'd get the guitar and find a quiet corner and try to figure it out what the chords would be. And um, so, yeah, but, and I still have to walk the town here in Stratford and just to kind of work on a tune and come back and get a little further with it. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, someone told me John Prine used to do that too when he was a, po- he was a mailman or something. Oh, whatever you're doing, it works. Yeah, I guess everybody's got their, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, it was uh, sit down with a half a bottle of scotch or whatever, and he would write. So whatever <laughs> yeah. works. Uh, so yeah. we, we moved to cut eight, and this was one of, uh, one of a couple of cuts that ended up in the album from the Shanghai surprise movie that Handmade Films had produced, the, the disaster with Madonna and Sean Penn. Lovely song, though, called someplace else. You got into my life I don't know how you found me But you did It stopped me heading 
someplace else. Yeah, it just has that kind of thing that the song Something had in a way, you know. Um, it's just a really pretty melody. Um, I think it's a good vocal from George, you know, like when all my world is sad and crazy, you know. It's, uh, yeah. And love, uh, you know what I really love about the song is the back vocals. You know all the all those sort of choir boy, you know, like ooh, all that stuff. So it's just a really nice song, um, and it, it's not as dirgy, obviously, as the other one. Um, just for today, you know. Yeah. So it, it just has a little more movement in it, I think. And I, I think the. Yeah, it's, a, it's got a beautiful melody. Uh, George says of the song, uh, I never did a soundtrack album because the film got slagged off so badly and we had such a rotten time with them while making it. I didn't want to lose the songs, though, especially Breath Away from Heaven, which has nice words, which is another one coming up. Yeah. So uh, cut nine and Wreck yeah. of the Hesperus. You've mentioned this one a few times. I gather you. I gather it's a favorite. Yeah, it's definitely up there like Devil's Radio. I'm not the wreck of the Hesperus Feel more like the wall of China Getting old as Methuselah Feel tall as the Eiffel Tower It's just like, again, he's rocking out, and I love when he goes, feel more like, you know, Big Bill Brunsy. <laughs> um, you can almost sort of get a sense that they're in the studio, and him and George are probably kind of winking at each other or whatever. You know, it just feels, uh, I mean, him and Eric, did I say Eric? Anyway, but it's just, uh, yeah, it's kind of a fun song that that I can't even, you know, I, not, not that he ever lost a sense of humor, but some of his albums that he made in the 70s and that, it, they seem to get a little more... I don't know. Just I just couldn't see the song being on like Don Trapo or something like that. Yeah. So it's it's just uh, it has a, a kind of vintage Beatle thing about it that you know this could probably have, have fit on a Revolver or something. You know? it, it was actually it was written a few years before work had started on the album, so he did have it kicking around. And for those of mm-hmm. you who don't know, it's titled after a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's 1841 poem, Wreck of the oh. Hesperus. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the story is about a man. He brings his daughter on a sea journey with him, only to have a hurricane hit. So he ties his daughter to the mast to save her from yeah. being swept overboard, only to have everyone perish as the ship crashes into the rock reef. So a happy song then. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's you know, it's like a, it's happy, but yeah, it's, it's coming from a, a place of tragedy, I guess, you know? Uh, Elton. But like I'm f- feeling old as Methuselah, I think he says. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Elton and on piano. he P- says, I got some company. Yeah. Elton rocking on <laughs> piano, Clapton on guitar, and Ringo on drums. So nice yeah. Nice little it's a dream, the dream team, yeah. But uh, no, it, again, it's not like a deep, really that deep of a song. It's just a fun song about getting older and just uh, kind of defending where he is in his at that point in in, in life. You know that they, they're older, they can still rock out, kind of a thing. You know? a, a neat story about the recording of this, and this is from a, a story that Elton John told uh, mm. Rolling Stone. He was working on this track, and it was an all-nighter, and he says, I remember staying up until 8 o'clock in the morning recording and then asking him, Harrison, to play Here Comes the Sun, and he did, and it was magical. Oh, my God. See, that's something, I, I'm glad you did your research, because that's something I never would have heard, uh, heard about. That's um, yeah, incredible. 
Because I've heard that I think Elton and George, they'd had a, some after this record at some point, they'd had a kind of a falling out or something. Or, or he, Elton said sometimes he would see George and he wasn't as friendly or something like this, you know. <clears throat> but um, anyway, they seem to be getting on very well on this on this record. Have you, I mean, you've told us about a few, but like... What's your closest moment to something like that? Was it working with Ray Davies, Leonard Cohen, or I mean, you've had so many. Can you pick one where you're like, you know, to use this yeah. as an example, you're sitting there with George Harrison. The sun is coming up, and he's singing "Here Comes the Sun." I, I don't, yeah. I don't know that you can beat that. No, um, I'm just trying to think. I mean. I mean, I guess that really going back to McCartney was just hearing him play at, at his kitchen table, you know, to play Calico Skies and Little Willow, you know, that was just, uh, I mean, sure, he could have played yesterday or something, that would have been amazing, but it was just as amazing to hear him play these songs that I'd never heard before, you know, and, um, you know, maybe there's another uh, example, but I, you know, I mean, singing with Leonard Cohen in the basement, The Indigo was pretty cool, you know. Um, can, but, uh, can I ask you something about McCartney? D- yeah. So, does his voice sound as beautiful and pure just sitting at the kitchen table playing? <laughs> you know, without a mic, without a compressor, without without just his voice. What does it sound yeah. like? Well, at the time when I met him, he was just fifty three, and yeah, it sounded inc- incredible. You know, it didn't sound like oh, I've just woken up or <laughs> whatever. You know, it just sounded really strong. I mean, you know, in recent years, he, I think he struggles more with his vocal, you know, from doing all those three-hour shows for years or something. Like, he's, there's certain parts of his register that they aren't really, you know, aren't there anymore, which is, it's always kind of sad to see because he was probably the strongest vo- vocalist ever, you know, just in terms of what his voice could do. But that day when I met him, he sounded... uh yeah, you know, you you don't need any effects with McCartney or tricks or anything. The guy, he just was so talented. Whatever instrument he played, you know, he could his voice could just about do anything. Do, do, Ron, do you do you like your older man voice? Like when you do you when you hear it back now? Do you like well, it when you've been, grown into well, it? Well, I think. I mean, what my early records are the way I sound well, now. Well, your early records, uh, I've heard you say before, you weren't, in, you hadn't found your singing voice in your first, your early records. I've heard you say that before. Yeah. But when yeah. you listen to, when you listen to your present day singing voice, do you like it? Like, have you gone, yeah, yeah I really like the feel of yeah, that Yeah, I think now. I'm a better singer now than I was. Although there's certain things, as I get older, um, yeah, sometimes I find myself lowering the key on this or that, or some, you know, sometimes getting up to. I was singing Galway Street the other night for my first record, and I was sort of struggling a little bit with the, with some of the high notes. But it, it you know, um, it's been a work in progress. For my first album, I mean, I've always sounded like me from my first album till now, but I've just been whittling away at it. Like, um, you know, on my early records, um, you know, I was just. Uh, I, th- I think I was very impressionable. You know, Mit- Mitchell Froome would say something to me like, I like the way you backphrase or something, which I didn't even know I was backphrasing. So that would make me backphrase all over the record, you know, because I, w- I wanted to impress him or something. Um, sometimes I thought my voice early on was too nasally or vibrated too much. And so on the next record, I might try to vibrate less or I might try to try to produce a fuller or a rounder tone. I think Dylan did it a lot too. Like you hear him singing on 
Highway 61, and then you hear him singing on, you know, Nashville Skyline on New Morning. It's a very different Bob Dylan, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was just always just trying to get better. I, I think the first album I ever made where I thought I was singing good on it was called Retriever. And I think I've sang pretty good on every record since. And and again, it's not to say I sang bad on my early records. It's just that I hadn't built up enough um, confidence, I think. But thankfully, I sang well enough that the people you know, who like me, liked it. You know? I, uh, I, I love Retriever. I think that's a great record. And I love the track Imaginary Friends, just as uh, for what it's worth. Love that. Love the record. Love that song, yeah. you know, really. Yeah, well, that song, um, that song, the melody of that song I wrote when I was 16. And it was a song called um, January Mine that I wrote for the high school queen who I had a crush on. Um, <laughs> but the, the lyrics were dreadful, you know. It was like, you know, January, mine, whatever. And so years later, I'm in Germany in my 30s. And I, for some reason, I, I guess because she was a German girl, her name was uh, Heidi Googie. And I just thought, I, I thought about that song and I stayed up all night and I wrote a completely new lyric. But obviously I was trying to find something with the same syllables. So I came up with Imaginary Friends. And... I'm so glad I did because I, uh, I think you know it was one of my favorites on that record too. Um, I, I just love it. Really, you know, and I know everybody has their own interpretation, and that's the great thing about music and poetry and so on. But uh, you know, I, I've in in my my former life, I was a, a sports announcer, and uh, and it's amazing. I, I don't do that anymore, and mm-hmm. it's amazing how all of those people who you thought were friends turned out to be imaginary friends. Uh, you know, yeah, they've, they've, it's kind of like the opposite of Rainy Day People by Garden Lightfoot, you know? Yeah. It's, it's you know, yeah. a fair weather friend. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's that's how it does. Anyway, uh, I, I digress. Uh, let's get back to George and a couple of cuts to go on the album. Cut 10 and Breath Away From Heaven. In another life I didn't know but until you said that this was written for um, Shanghai. What's that movie called? Shanghai, Shanghai? Surprise, yeah. Yep. Yeah, which kind of makes sense because the song has that very almost sort of, you know, Chinese um, melody to it, you know? Yeah. You know, that ding, 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 whatever that thing, that instrument they're using on it. So that kind of makes sense now in a way. Um, yeah, it's 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 kind of an unusual song. It's, it's definitely a, a stands out on this record because nothing else really is in that you know, in that world, um, you know, so I don't, I don't think I initially warmed up to it, but most recently when I, when I listened to the, to, to the record, I, I really enjoyed hearing it, you know, um, I, again, I think it's a, it's a classic George lyric and, um, 
Yeah, so it really grew on, grew on me. And what he tried to do, he did the same thing when he did the soundtrack for Wonderwall music. He chose to, for the purposes of writing, to sort of adopt a, a dramatic persona, if you will, who would write the song. So very poetic imagery, no real autobiographical thing going on here. He's you know captured by her loneliness, a wounded tiger on a willowy path, like an opalescent yep. moon. And so, do you ever do that? Do you ever? I'm going to pretend that I'm this guy writing this song yeah i have um there have been times when i might you know someone will say oh uh michael buble is looking for a song or faith hill or and so then i'll i'll even though i don't really know these people i'll try to imagine what they might want to sing about and i'll write a song you know in like with someone like buble i might write a song where i'm pretending I'm like uh, Johnny Mercer or something, you know, like, uh, and write like a standardy kind of thing. Um, and I've done that over and over or, um, and some, and usually what happens is uh, nobody records the song. So I end up doing it myself. Um, which is fine because it's a song that I wouldn't have otherwise written, you know? So, but yeah, um, sometimes you'll, you get into a persona. I don't do it very often, but it's mostly when I get asked for a, to write for somebody or or whatever that is when I'll sort of put on those kind of uh, put on those shoes. Remind me of the one that you. I apologize for not having it on the tip of my tongue. The one you wrote for Diana Krall, and you did record yeah. it. You recorded it yourself. She didn't ever record it. I don't think. What was that song called? Yeah, that was called Foolproof. Yes. Yeah, and I had written because at the time I was always struggling. With I could never get a hit record. I was never. I was always financially uh, insecure and all this stuff. And I remember I was at a point where I, I felt I was about to be dropped by my label, and I didn't. You know, I was so I had a lot of anxiety about it. And I thought, well, maybe if I wrote a song that Diana Krall would do, or, or Rod Stewart, or somebody. I mean, Rod Stewart ended actually did do one of my songs a few years earlier. But um, so I remember I was at a basketball game watching my son play basketball. But I wasn't really watching him. I was writing the song in my head, and I wrote the whole thing at the basketball game, like the the entire song, you know. And so I couldn't wait to get home and work out what the chords were for it. Um, but then, you know, I I don't know. I can't remember if I demoed it and sent it to Di- to Diane or not. But all I remember is it it ended up being on my the the songs you know, that Steve Earle heard for Blue Boy. And it was his idea for me to play it on piano, uh, which was pretty, uh, you know, nerve-wracking at the time. Like, because I was, I mean, I, I'm okay now on the piano, but back then I was really bad. So I'm just just to get that take, you know, because it's a live take without hitting any bum notes was, was scary. Um, but he was right, because, you know, then he brought in the horn player, so to give it that... Chet Baker thing. Um, but yeah, so that's an example of a song I wrote. I wrote another one at the same time called Your Guess is As Good as Mine that ended up on my Destination Unknown record that also I thought for Tony Bennett or somebody like that. Um, but uh, yeah, the songs that you write for the people, like I wrote, I sent Buble a whole bunch, but he never did any of them. But then he finally did whatever it takes, which is a song I never sent him, you know, so, you know, it's, it's it just, you can't really, you can't know really what people might. Yeah, I, I loved it. I, I didn't know initially until I, I started reading through the liner notes uh, years later after I'd heard the song, Foolproof, but then that you'd written it initially with Diana Krall in mind, and then when I listen to it now, it's, it's, 
I can so hear that. Like that could be that could be Bill Evans on piano sitting in the Village <laughs> Vanguard and the beautiful brushwork on the drums. That's a that's a great song. Yeah. That's a, you should. It was a, a couple of years ago. It was done by a jazz artist whose name I've forgotten or misplaced, and and it was actually kind of nice to hear someone who could really do you know the jazz piano on it and everything that I that I'm unable to do. Um, I mean, you know, it's still early. Maybe someone will do it eventually, but. Um, but again, I'm just glad I wrote it because uh, it wasn't a personal song or anything. It was just something I wrote in that vein of, I mean, I guess Elvis Costello had one, you know, almost blue. Um, and I guess I was sort of trying to write something like that. So last cut on the album, Cut 11, Got My Mind Set on You, the biggest hit in the record. It was released as a single three weeks before the album came out and his first number one single since Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth in 73. I just remember this as being huge. I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. My mind said on you, but it's gonna take money, a whole lot of spending money. It's gonna take plenty of money to do it right, child. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and and I loved it. I mean, the, the first time I heard it, I just couldn't believe it. It was so catchy. You know, originally I thought it was a George song, which I mean, I, I'm not disappointed that it's not a George song, but it's. I just thought, wow, that is, if that's not a hit, I'm, I don't know what is, right? And, it, and uh, so it was, it was great because, you know, like you say, it came out before the record. So it had all this, this anticipation, you know, that it was going to be a real kind of rock and album, which, it, you know, it, and it is in some ways. Um, but that, uh, and the video for it was really fun and he looked so cool. You know, I love the bit where he dances at the end. Obviously, it's not him, but, you know. <laughs> It's it's uh, yeah, it's just amazing. Uh, it was just great to hear George on the radio, especially like I say, uh, you know, Paul hadn't had much luck in recent years getting on the radio, and um, yeah, and it's it just has uh, all that. It has obviously Jeff Lynn all over it, and it's, it, it just uh, yeah. I was cranking out one the other night when I listened to the record because it it just like it's almost like if you could study that song, you know, you'd be like, okay, now I know how to what I need to do to have a hit single. You know, it just comes on so strong and it, it's just, yeah, it's great. Written. Written by Rudy Clark, performed by James Ray in 1962. Here's a, a quote from Jim Keltner talking about the song. Uh, he said, I had brought my SP-12, my little drum machine sampler. Jeff saw me with the machine and said, you know the problem with drum machines is that they don't swing. So I started playing a sample that I had brought from a record I had just done in L.A. with Andy Taylor and Steve Jones. I was playing this groove, and in the back of the room, Gary Wright on keys starts playing the chord progression to Got My Mind Set On You. Then George starts singing. Jeff chimed in, and pretty soon we were playing the song. We all flipped out. I laid down my drum track from my SP-12, and they all proceeded to overdub on it. So I'm assuming this was a song that Gary Wright and George knew when they were kids or, or were fond of or something, right? You would think if they were able to jump right in. Uh, I mean, it, it was yeah. a minor hit for James Ray in 1962, so that would be their era, yeah. Yeah, because I'd never heard it before, and I still haven't heard the original. It reminds me, of, I heard a story where the Stones were, were jamming uh, Harlem Shuffle, 
and Mick hadn't arrived yet, and he came in and just knew what it was and just started singing it, and they recorded it or something. So I guess it's a song that, you know, it, it just it was like it sounded like it was a happy accident, you know. That, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm gonna have to go check out the original someday. I, I, I have a feeling it's probably nowhere near as catchy as what George and and Jeff Lynne came up with. <laughs> yeah, and and, you, and you're it was one of those like from the second you hear that you would have more of an ear for this than me. But I mean, the yeah. second you hear that opening sort of drum sample or drum, you'd go, oh, how can that not be a hit? And, yeah, and, 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 yeah, no, I just I just loved it, and it's perfect way to end the record just on a real high note and um yeah and it, it's kind of points in the direction i guess of where you know of the wilburys of where it was all going to go after that i mean you know it was all you know the tom petty stuff he did and you know it, it jeff lynn kind of ruled that era it seems you know uh just a bit about the cover art uh the cover shot was uh shot in a studio in Hampstead uh in london by a guy named gerard mankowitz and mm-hmm. it screams 80s you know the font the mirror shades uh, the coolest story is about the guitar that he's holding in the shot it's the 57 gretch 6128 duo jet that he bought in Liverpool in 1961. And here's kind of a funny story. He'd given the guitar to his buddy Klaus Vorman two decades okay. previously. But then he said, here's a quote from George, I asked him what happened to the guitar and whether I could have it back <laughs> because of its nostalgic value. So he returned it to me and I had it fixed back in its original form with the original pickup and switches that had been missing from it since he owned it. Uh, and then it was all fixed up and that's the guitar that he's holding on the front of the album cover and uh, he plays it in uh, the We Was Fab video and, and so on. So kind of a funny and, story. And, and did he play this on the early Beatle records? Yeah. I'm assuming he must have because he he bought it. It was the first expensive guitar that he ever bought. Okay. Um, so I'm thinking he played it on the early records and then gave it to gave it to Klaus as a as a gift and then decided he wanted it back. So yeah. And speaking of Klaus, what an amazing bass player! Holy jeez, on all all those Beatles solo albums, he was so great. You know. Yeah, very underrated, isn't he? As a bass player, don't you think? Uh, yeah, I don't really understand. Uh, I remember I had a road manager once, and I asked him who his favorite bass player was, and he said Klaus Vorman. And I'd never even it never even occurred to me, you know. And I was just like, oh my god, you're right. Listen to him on every song, whether it's Lennon record or Ringo or George. He's just so melodic, so in tune with what's going on. You so, know, but, uh, I, uh, I want to ask you about uh, your cover art, Ron, of... of, of uh, so I'll give you my favorites of yours, yeah. and then I'm dying to hear what you think. So um, I love... Uh, 2001's Blue Boy, the sort of it's a if you haven't seen it, listener, it's a sort of a cartoonish Ron caricature. Yeah. Uh, 2004's, and this is might be my favorite album of yours. I, I don't know if, if you're cool with that or not, but Retriever, and mm. I, I love the close-up photo. Has a real 60s vibe to it. I think you're wearing a Paisley shirt. So I like that cover. And your mm. most recent album, uh, The Last Rider. It's <laughs> if you have yeah. it's it's sort of a mini a mock-up of The Last Supper. So those are some of my favorites. Uh, how about you? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, those are all. Um yeah, I mean, I like the the Blue Boy one was fun because I didn't, you know, photo sessions can be so hard for me because I don't really smile in photos, and so I'm always happy whenever we get one that's 
half decent. And I actually tried to have a photograph taken of me at, in the blue boy pose, you know, and uh, where I'm, I did a whole bunch of them. And they just, none of them looked any good. And I just said, you know what, I think I'm going to try drawing it. So I did that little cartoon and then I lost the original cartoon that I, you know, and so the one that the, the guy who put the package together, he was working off some sort of copy of it somehow that where the quality wasn't as good, but he was able to finally make it happen on, on the album cover. But um, yeah, so it, I always like, I was, and I did also on, on the inner, inner jacket of that record, I did all these drawings of the, you know, Steve Earl as well, these sort of little line drawings that I do. Um, yeah, so it was just, it was just, uh, I mean, I got the idea because I was in Spain in my hotel room writing a song called Tell Me Again. And on the wall, they had a, a print of Gainsborough's Blue Boy, which gave me the idea that, oh, you know, that's what, that would be a good name for my next record. Because I always felt as a kid, I looked a bit like the, Gaines, the Gainsborough Blue Boy. <laughs> and um, so that's kind of where that, that, you know, that started. In terms of Retriever, that was kind of like a full circle thing because I, you know, Daniel Lanois took all the photos for my first album. So I happened to be in uh, in L.A. and I went to visit Dan in Silver Lake. He's a kind of a, an amateur photographer. He just it's just something one of his passions, you know. And um, so he just started taking pictures of me around his house in Silver Lake, and that's what you see. That's the cover of Retriever in the back cover. And I think he messed around with the colors. I don't think my shirt was that quite that blue or something. Um, but again, he took a whole bunch of photos, some good, some bad, and and that one I just I I liked it. I just liked the you know the angle of it, and uh, so that you know that's that story. Um, the last rider was just you know that was originally a drawing I did on a big napkin backstage. It was the last show of a of a very very long tour, so I did this sort of yeah you know Da Vinci ta- parody on a on a napkin where I drew us all around a table with wine and everything. And so when we went to make that record, I already knew I was going to call it The Last Rider. And so I arranged for this photographer, Eden Robbins, to come to uh, the bathhouse where we, you know, the Tragically Hip studio. And I scouted out a location. My wife bought a big, long table, and, and she sort of was the art di- art director of it and found all these like gargoyles and things and we bought you know we brought about 10 bathrobes from home to for for everyone in the band and it was one of those things where i told everybody okay we're going to try this it may look really stupid and if so we're not going to do it but i just want to try this and see what happens and and eden came up and you know, and this, it was just at the right time. It was that magic hour, you know, where the light was. And we we were in the middle of recording something, and we had to stop, put on these stupid bathrobes, run outside, and have this picture taken. And I think he got it pretty quickly. You know, in the first half an hour, he took a whole bunch of variations of it, and um, you know, and then it was hard to find a picture where everybody looked sort of okay. There's always one where somebody was you know, winking or or something. So we finally got the shot. And um, so, yeah, so it was just, it was nice when you have an idea in your head and it turns out. And uh, because I was prepared 
just to say, okay, let's forget about this. I'll just go stand by that wall and take my picture. You know? <laughs> it, it reminded me a little of the gatefold in uh, living in the material world, where Harrison yeah. and all the—they're all sitting at a big long table as well. It's—it's—it's it's, it's not quite the Last Supper mock-up that you did, but same kind of thing. Um, well, yeah, it, I was trying to either do like Last Supper or Mad Hatter's Tea Party or like you know the with the beggars banquet thing. I wanted to, somewhere in there. That's what I was hoping for. Yeah. So I just a, a couple of other notes, and then I want to get your final thoughts on on the album and and uh, maybe George Harrison. So it, it was uh, it, Harrison kind of reappeared from that commercial slumber, and then he roars back with the top ten album, and then he comes out a year later with Traveling Wilburys, and that's a number one record in Canada, number three in the U.S., top twenty in the U.K. Then meanwhile, in the background, the Beatles' relations were sort of acrimonious. Uh, In January of 88, Beatles were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. McCartney refused to show because of ongoing business differences, which apparently deeply irritated Harrison. Then his his production company, Handmade Films, starts to implode. His former business partner and friend at one time... uh, left him on the hook for millions and that that was a, a sordid thing uh he goes and does the mini tour of japan needing some cash and and he got some he made uh, almost 10 million pounds in, in a yeah. a quick little 12 show tour over there um and then he got involved in the Beatles anthology project, and that was resurrected and starting shooting in 92, and the anthology went on the air, and he was sort of bought into that. And then yeah. he just had a terrible run of awful things. Um, and mm. Anthology comes out. Not long afterwards, he's diagnosed with throat cancer, uh, mm. undergoes treatment for that. On December 30th, 1999, Harrison and his wife were attacked at their home by a deranged lunatic who almost killed Harrison. He recovers yeah. from that. The cancer reappears. It had spread, and it led to his death on November 29th, 2001. So this, in many ways, Ron, this was really kind of a, a last although he wouldn't have known it at the time, it was a last moment on top of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought? I mean, I mean, it's a crazy person who kills Lennon and then this crazy person who attacks George. And I mean, you know, you mentioned the anthology when I was at McCartney's house, apparently the weekend before I was there, both George and Ringo were there discussing the anthology. And, and it was sort of interesting for me to, you know, because Paul was still kind of griping about there. You know, they did "Bird." What is it? "Free as a Bird." They did another song, and apparently there was a third song they were going to do, but George vetoed it. And Paul was kind of griping about it at at breakfast. He was saying George was didn't want to do it because there was some chord progression. I think it went from an F to a B minor or something that that was bugging George or something. So, you know, even after all this time, it was interesting to hear that they were still kind of bickering about whatever it was, you know. And and um, it was a good thing that it happened a week before I got there because I'm sure I never would have been invited if the, those guys were over. But, um, but, yeah, it's so weird when you think about all that happened. I mean, him, him getting sick and then... Um, but if you know in the documentary, he, I think uh, the, when he got attacked in his home, it, it, it's I think after that point he started preparing to die, and I think he was okay with it. You know, I think he'd been something he had been rehearsing in a way. You know, and um, so I think he whatever happened to him, he always seemed to face it with a kind of upbeat thing. You know, with humor, and he didn't seem to be. 
you know, wasn't moaning about it or anything. So I, it was something very, I think, brave in the way he handled it. So, Ron, what are your final thoughts of uh, on our conversation and Cloud Nine? And we've been talking about it for the last hour and a half. What uh, What's your sort of takeaway from this? Well, I just think, again, I don't know, maybe because it's an 80s album, but it, it never seems to get the the respect that some of his other albums get. And I, cause I think it's a much stronger album than, you know, gone tropo and, uh, you know, some place somewhere in England or whatever. There's a bunch of records he did that, you know, sometimes they would have a, like one single on it or something, but then the rest of the album wasn't that memorable, you know? And whereas this record, I think is as strong as his strong, as stronger albums, like, all Things Must Pass, Living in the Material World. Um, the other one I really like was 33 and the third, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, even uh, Dark Horse has got some cool things on it, even though I guess his voice was, was sh- shot on it. So, yeah, I just always wonder why no one ever really talks about this record because it, it was obviously his most successful album or one second most or whatever. Um, it was just a really upbeat joyful album even the album cover looking at george smiling george on the front um so yeah so i'm just really glad to kind of sort of shine a light on it today um because it's one that i still put on you know there's some some of those other records uh i don't have a great desire to put them on but 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 this one it's, it's a nice record to kind of rock out to um kind of crank it up and uh yeah so hope you know. I know there's other people out there who 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 like it as much as I do, but you just never hear anyone talk about it. Ron, thank you so much for the generosity of your time and and talking about yeah. a great record. It was a lot of fun, and I, I thank you for it. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to do this. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that you had asked before or whatever. I don't know if it ever got to me or something. Glad we got to do it this way. Hey, well, as am I. It uh, it all worked out very well, and, and thanks again. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I would invite you, if you want to check out all things Ron Sexsmith, to go to Ron's website, ronsexsmith.com. You can find out information about all of his work, when he's going to tour, (laughs) again at some point when uh, musicians are able to go out and tour. That's the place to go, ronsexsmith.com. And if you click through, uh, it has information on all of his albums and also on many of the individual tracks and the stories behind those tracks. So if you're a big fan, it is a must visit. RonSexsmith.com and also a great follow on Twitter. Ron Sexsmith is the handle. Uh, let me know what you thought about this episode or any of the episodes. What are your thoughts on George Harrison's Cloud Nine? You can interact with me on Twitter or Instagram. The handle on both is the underscore RomyCast. That is the underscore RomyCast, R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T. Love to hear from you. And you can also take a look for the Facebook page. Just do a search on Facebook for The Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you will find it. That's another great way to communicate. That is it for this show. Coming up next time, do keep an eye out for the next drop. 
My guest will be one of the most talented multi-instrumentalists in Canadian rock music. He has played with Ron Sexsmith, played with him for many years in his band. He's played with Burton Cummings and many, many more. He is a huge Beatles fan. Tim Bovaconti will join me next time to talk about A Hard Day's Night. That's next time on The Walrus was Paul. Until then, stay safe. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here? Oh, that's a little Mr. John finally got just after that, and we can both of us do what we want to do, do what we want to do. If you think it was cool, keep it, if you don't, scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad, that one. Keep that one. Market fab. <laughs>